offering is being taken. Let's uh, spend a few moments just taking care of some housekeeping matters. There's a lot that is happening uh, in, the, the, in the fellowship and the life of Sunnybrook Christian Church that we want you to be aware of and even to have a little bit of a heads up on because uh, the fall is already kind of almost upon us. And uh, as I said, that, that usually means that there's going to be a lot of opportunities for us uh, to be serving together and to be doing life together um, in some very intentional ways, and we want you to know about them. So one of the first things that, we, that I want to talk about this morning, and you'll notice in the lobby, there is, uh, I think Diane is back there earlier, I saw Ryan back there, but there'll be um, a, a booth set up uh, to try to encourage those people who are interested in connecting to what we call Encounter. There's Men's Encounter and Women's Encounter, and uh, for those of you that would love to have an opportunity to be with others who are like you, to know and recognize and respond to what God has done, and maybe to what God is doing in your life. Uh, we would love to help connect with that. I believe, I have the dates here, it is the 27th through the 29th of October is when Women's Encounter is. Uh, the next Men's Encounter will be coming up, I believe, in the early part of 2018. Uh, but this is for Women's Encounter. If you want some more information or to talk with somebody, I know that Diane and, and some of the other women in our church who have been a part of Women's Encounter would love to talk with you and, and see if that's something that you need to connect to and uh, you need an opportunity uh, to spend uh, a weekend away, again, to focus on what God has done and what God is currently doing in you. Um, we've got some missions opportunities that are uh, on the horizon and would love to be able to keep you aware of these because they will involve in, in many ways a number of our, uh, a number of our uh, hours on the weekend to make a difference. So every year, Sunnybrook comes together, um, in the, for the last few years at least we've been doing this, and we work with an organization known as Help Build Hope which also partners with another organization that you may know of, Habitat for Humanity, and we build over a weekend a couple of houses, and that's what we're going to do again this year. We are going to on, I know this sounds crazy, but on Saturday morning, that last Saturday in September, we are going to be coming together and we're going to build two houses uh, in our parking lot. And uh, for those of you that have been, how many of you have been on a Help Build Hope weekend? Yeah, a number of you have. It really is an amazing opportunity, and it, it, is, it is something that a whole family can do. Um, it is something that you can do even if you're just wanting, man, I just want to make a difference. Uh, we would love to be able to connect with you. And so next week, sign-ups will begin and would encourage you to consider spending your, uh, we need some people to work on Friday night, cutting and everything, making sure, making sure everything is ready to go. And then Saturday morning, we come together and we literally construct all the walls for the entire house, and then we actually build one of them in the field uh, off, of, off of Perkins Road, and you can actually w walk through the house. One of the, one of the people that we, we already know we're gonna be, one of these houses is going to go through, uh, go to through Habitat for Humanity is actually a veteran. And so I know a lot of people wanna say thank you for their service, and they wanna, they wanna make sure that we can put that thank you in a very tangible, very real way. And so if that pulls your heart or if you just want to be involved in something that is not about you but is really about somebody else who has a need, really want to encourage you to take some time out of your very busy schedule and to be a part of this Help Build Hope weekend. Um, I came back from Colombia, the country Colombia, uh, in January, and I said, listen, I just spent some time with some people from Compassion International, which put in, tried to put an end to poverty, uh, particularly for children, in the name of Jesus. And then I said, um, 
We don't have a specific date and plans figured out yet, but please do not run and uh, sign up for a child yet because we're going to be doing something as a church body. That's going to begin the beginning part of October. And so we have uh, been talking with compassion. We're going to be spending a number of weeks, actually, highlighting this need and really talking about some intentional ways that we can partner, not just with compassion, but in a particular location, the Dominican Republic, and then a particular connection with some three particular churches in the Dominican Republic, where hopefully we're working with other organizations, building homes, and, and trying to, to, to do, in the name of Jesus, to put an end to childhood poverty. And so uh, I'm excited about those three weeks. Uh, Andrea and I haven't sponsored a Compassion Child for a while, so I have no idea what his or her name is going to be, but we've already uh, committed that, yeah, that's something that we want to be a part of, that's something that we want to do, and hopefully you're praying about that, and hopefully you're going to be thinking about that. really want this to be not a, I'm not going to pull on your heartstring, hey, look at this child, don't you care about it? No. I just want you to know this child has an incredible need. I want you to look at what God has given you. I want, to look, I want you to prayerfully consider the responsibility because it's a, it can be a long-term commitment. Andrea and I have had some of our compassion children's for over a decade. And so it's not just a heart moment. It literally is a commitment. I'm going to see you through. I remember meeting Bet, um, who is uh, our compassion child in Ethiopia. And when I was there on a mission trip with Jake and Aaron Moore one time, uh, I got an opportunity to meet Bet. And I see this young woman, and I just remember looking at her, and I just said the first thing that came to mind, which was, I am going to do everything I can to take care of you until you don't need help anymore. There was something about seeing her and just realizing just how, um, how desperate her circumstances were. And by the way, I'm not her savior. His name is Jesus. I know him. And by the way, so does she. But now to look at these pictures and see how Bet is now a young woman getting ready to go to university and just think, wow, like, Andrea and I had a small part to play in this young woman who I believe will be on a completely different trajectory because of Compassion International in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So really looking forward to that time where we can not just have our heart strings pulled on, but literally our heart, soul, and mind coming together and saying, let's make a difference in the name of Jesus Christ in these young people's lives that live in the Dominican Republic. And so that's going to be coming up in the beginning of October. I want you to be aware of that and be prayerfully considering what those uh, implications are going to be on your own life. And then before we jump into our timeline, I also want to remind you of something that you're very aware of, which is a lot of prayer is needed for our brothers and sisters and just our fellow humanity uh, that right now lives on the Florida coastline. Um, we have been praying for Houston for a long time. By the way, some of the worst flooding is taking place right now in Bangladesh and in India and in parts of China where not just a few people are dying, but well over, like into the thousands of people are dying. And so let's not forget um, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And so even though we may not plan a trip, I don't know, we'll see what the Lord calls, we may not plan a trip to India to make a difference, we can still love or uh, love them through beseeching, seeking, asking, begging God uh, for the church to rise up and make a difference there. And I know that it will. I mean, I'm already hearing reports about what the church is doing, not just in Houston and not just in Tampa Bay and in, in, the, in the Florida Peninsula, but also in other parts of the world. That's what I want to do now. Let's pray. So God, I thank you, not knowing exactly how to pray sometimes, and so I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit fills in the gap that my mind does not know and that my heart maybe not even feel exactly. I thank you for your intercession, 
for your behalf, on your behalf, through me. But God, I, I do know that there are so many people right now that are scared and whose lives are going to be turned upside down by Hurricane Irma or those that are still in the process of realizing how different their lives are going to be, even the displaced people that are now leaving Houston. Um, Father, with their lives and maybe even with most of their possessions, but still disoriented and confused, scared, just not knowing what the future is going to hold. I pray, Father, that not only would you make yourself known in them and to them, but God, I pray that your church would rise up. And I've seen it happen, and so I thank you for what you've already done, but may it continue to rise up. Father, I, I know that I could have, and I don't think I did, just pray that hurricanes would avoid our coastlands and that none of these terrible things would ever happen. I, I, I really wonder um, how much I should be praying for those things. I don't know. But God, I do know that you are in control of all things and that you do love us and that you love those who are not even following you. And so I ask you to intercede um, on your behalf because of your love for them. And Father, that you would help us where we need to rise up and make a difference. Um, that God, you would put on our hearts, not those who are just in America, but those who are in other parts of the world that don't even have the infrastructure who don't even have the resources that we have. Um, so God, uh, I just trust you with this. And I, I, I believe that, Father, you love and you know far more than I believe and know. And you are good, and I believe that. It's in Jesus' name I trust. Amen. Let's watch your timeline. Here's what you need to know as we continue our story today. Under David's reign, Israel attained new heights of glory and power. Under Solomon's reign, that glory would only increase. Solomon came to the throne around 971 BC, and he ruled over God's people for 40 years. During that time, Israel lived in peace, and her borders continued to expand. Solomon amassed great amounts of wealth and undertook large, extravagant building projects as the reputation of Israel and her king grew throughout the world. On the surface, Solomon was the greatest ruler in Israel's history. But the greatness of Israel's kings was not measured by their economic success or by the size of their empire. It was measured by their faithfulness to Yahweh, and Solomon's ultimate legacy was yet to be determined. I don't think it's an accident uh, that I am right now in the process of reading a book that is, A, a difficult read, not just because of its content, but because of its size, by the economic scholar uh, Thomas Sewell. Uh, you might know who he is, but he wrote a book a number of years ago entitled, and you'll know where I'm going with this as we talk about King Solomon, the title of the book I'm reading right now is called Intellectuals and Society. And this book describes a problem that we have in our culture, that we look at those people who are very, very, very intelligent and gifted in one particular area, and then we somehow assume or believe that because they're so smart and so educated and so intelligent and so insightful in one area, that they must be right in other areas as well. And this book just unravels much of what I have believed about what's going on in this country and in the world, even over the last few hundred years. 
He, he describes this tendency that we have, and it's always easy for us to see it looking backwards into human history. When we look backward on the life of someone and we say, well, how could they be that way? How could they make such mistakes? Do you know the name Bertrand Russell? Philosopher, more than that, actually his, um, his, his field of expertise was mathematics. And Bertrand Russell decided to extend his brilliance into other areas of life. And so here he is, living in England in the early 1930s, looking at the European landscape, and he became known as one of the greatest political influences on the British culture. And his argument was this. In light of what is happening right now in Europe, particularly in Germany, we should, are you ready for this, disarm ourselves. What? And he began to look at all that which was promised, particularly in the nation of Germany in 1935, and strongly recommended that Britain take to heart just the strength of its neighbors and realize we should disarm. And he became one of the major proponents of, I don't even think, are you ready for this? I don't think in light of what's going on in, in, in mainline Europe, I think we should just dissolve our military. What would we need an army for? What would we need a navy for? And people were going, he's Bertrand Russell. Like, how, how could he get it wrong? George Bernard Shaw, in 1938, William or Thomas Sowell describes, is on his way, leaving England, 1938. And he's traveling to South Africa, and he makes this comment in the fall of 38. Now that Adolf Hitler has taken care of all of the problems in Europe, I can rest easy knowing that things are under his care. And within months, Hitler invades Poland. How can you be so smart and get it so wrong? Now listen, I guess part of that is Bertrand Russell's issue and part of that is Shaw's issue. I want to talk about our problem. And our problem is, what is it about really intelligent, really educated people that impresses us so that we just follow like sheep? That we just are so influenced by their brilliance in one particular area that we just feel like, well, if, if they're smart in that, they must be able to explain other areas. I doubt if I'm the only one, but it, as I've gotten older, it's been easier for me to stomach, but I remember finding out years and years and years ago that Albert Einstein, I'm sure it's somewhat mythical, the smartest human who ever lived, didn't love and follow Jesus like I did. I mean, I know he had some really cool comments about how God must have made the universe, but he's not a follower of Jesus like I'm a follower of Jesus, and, and, and this might sound crazy to you. You might even begin to wonder, who's our pastor? But it always bothered me that someone so smart and so intelligent didn't see life the way I did. I began to wonder, maybe I'm wrong on this one. Anybody else? Anybody else so influenced and overwhelmed by Thomas Sewell's phrase, the intelligentsia? Any college students sitting in a philosophy class right now going, wait a second, you have the PhD, I don't have the PhD, maybe I'm wrong. 
Now, the good news is you have what your mom told you is kind of like a backup defense. You have what your youth pastor told you, like in your hip pocket. But when someone stands in front of the room and they have more letters behind their name than you have letters in your name, you just have to stop. Anybody just feel overwhelmed by really, really, really smart people? By the way, Thomas Sewell says, that's part of our problem. By the way, it bothers me that Thomas Sewell is not a believer, but that's, a, that's actually part of this sermon, but that's not the point. Even it bothers me that he, this great guy that is becoming so influential in my thinking on other issues, how does he miss it? And what we're going to be looking at in the life of King Solomon kind of continues this. Solomon is my Albert Einstein of the Bible. How can you be so smart? How can you be so gifted? How can you be so, well, the word that describes him in many ways is wise and absolutely miss it. Well, part of the problem is, is that you and I have this wrong notion, this, this lie that we believe, that when we look at life and when we try to discern what is happening in life, and when we see A, A would be God's blessing upon us, which usually comes in wealth and health, and just good living. That when we have that, and then B, we recognize, well, then that must have come from who? Who gives good gifts? Who just gives all these wonderful good gifts? Who gives health and who gives blessings? And, and the Bible seems to describe more often than not that the answer is who? God. If I have this and God gives this, well, then I must be doing something right. And you know what I'm talking about. When life is hard and the income is low or the resources are scarce, what do you begin to do? You begin to doubt yourself. You begin to wonder what you're doing wrong. You begin to kind of read backwards this equation, A plus B equals C, and when C is a number or a quotient that you do not like, you gotta, I gotta go back to A and B. Maybe I'm not doing something right. Because if I was doing something right, then this is how this would work. And we take that mentality and we push it through the scriptures and what I love is, it never adds up. Because there is part of that A plus B equals C that we seldom really understand or appreciate. And it's what I have been talking about, what we're always gonna have to deal with during this series, the Gospel of the Kings and the Prophets, is this. Is that God is a variable in the equation that really kind of holds the whole equation together. It is about God's sovereign plan and his prerogative that we sometimes fail to understand. The Bible never gives us a simple formula for life. And I would even caution you against it. Instead, the Bible describes life as something that has an A and a B in it, but that C component this sovereign, this plan of God, this purpose of God, this overriding and underlying purposes of God, the prerogatives of God actually do so much to the equation that we have to sit and we just wonder at what is going on around us and we just sit in awe of what God is doing. And maybe God isn't so much someone to be figured out as much as he is to be worshipped as much as he is to be pursued, as much as he is to have a, a sense of, of reverence. Well, when we talk about Solomon, one of the first things that comes to my mind, okay, is his wealth. And so if you have your Bibles, we're gonna begin in 1 Kings chapter 10. 
And the Bible describes this wealth, and here's what's interesting. Although the backdrop of this could be Deuteronomy 17, where God warns, against, warns kings against accumulating vast amounts of wealth. One of the things that prosperity preachers do is they take a truth and they make it the truth and it confuses the rest of us. So they look at a life like Abraham or a life like David or a life like Solomon and they describe God's blessing in his wealth and in his riches and then then logically assume, well, shouldn't that be true for us today? Isn't that true for all people in all time? And that's 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 the wrong thinking, by the way. Because I can think of a lot of people in the Bible that God did not bless in that way, but blessed in other ways. And so we look at the life of Solomon and we look at his wealth, and I don't know exactly what the Bible is doing, what the writer of 1 Kings is doing. I think we probably need to hear both sides of the story, which are this. We are going to describe his wealth, agree to excessiveness that is both embarrassing... And also from God. Here's how it's described, beginning in verse 14, 1 Kings chapter 10. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents. Right there, man, that tells you. Well, actually it doesn't, by the way. If you're really careful reading that number, which is described in our kind of way, from Revelation, which is the book at the very end of the Bible, and then going back here and going, hey, that's what this must mean. Now, come on, think. That's not what's happening. You know why the Bible writes 666 talents here? Because that's how many it was. Nobody read that and went, oh, that's demonic. That's the mark of the beast. They didn't even know there was a beast that was coming. So this is a vast number, a an incredible number of gold, besides that of which came from the explorers and from the, this is what, this is by the way what kings were good at, developing exploration and developing businesses, plus that gold which came from explorers and from businesses of merchants and from all of the kings of the west and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made, and now it's going to go into, I almost thought about deleting this, but now you got to hear this, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shields of gold went, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three mines of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The, the king also made a great ivory throne. And, you know, ivory is a very expensive thing. And so when you look at something made out of pure ivory, I know, we're both thinking this, gold should go over that. Like, look at the excess here. Great ivory throne, and it was overlaid with fine gold. Can you imagine being a military that says, listen, it really doesn't add anything to the strength of a tank, but we have so much money, we have decided to overlay all of our tanks with gold. Why? Because we can. (laughs) Wow. Like the degree of excess. Two things. Number one, God's going to make it very clear. If you go back and you read 1 Kings 3 or you read 2 Chronicles 1, what you're actually going to see is God is the one who gives this. So we gotta recognize him as the source. The Bible nowhere says that Solomon received these things because he was a terrible person and God hated him, but somehow God was able to, or Solomon was able to get this from God. No, God gave this to him. 
There is a story that we see in the Bible that tells how this happened. Where did all this wealth come from? And at the very beginning of Solomon's reign, Solomon has this vision, this appearance. God comes to him and speaks to him and says, Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon had a number of options. He could have said, you know what I want? I want a long life. Isn't that what you want? I want to live a really, really, really long time. And I don't want to die young. I want to be able to look at my grandkids. I want to be able to to look at everything that I've done and have a sense of purpose. I want a long, good life. He doesn't ask for that. He could have said, God, you know what I want? What I really, 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 really want is I want lots of money because that's where real power comes from. Power comes from having wealth and having influence. And God, what I want is a lot of wealth so that I can have my way, so that I can have my desires, so that whatever I want and anything I put my mind to, anything I put my heart to, I can just have it. God, I want wealth beyond measure. I mean, honestly, whenever you think about the possibility of rubbing a lamp and a genie comes out and what do you want? Every time, it's what? Money. God says, I'll give you whatever you want. He could have asked for money. He doesn't ask for that. He's a king. He could have said, God, what I really need is protection from my enemies. After all, everyone's looking at the king, trying to figure out how they can be king. And so you've always got a target on your back as king. And Solomon could have said, what I want more than anything else is I need you to have my back, God. Can you make sure I don't really have enemies? Can you make sure that I can sleep at night knowing? Now, I know this will give you a long life, but what he's asking, he could have asked for, is I just want protection from my enemies. Will you do that for me? He doesn't ask for those things. Instead, Solomon looks at the responsibility that has been given to him, and Solomon says, God, I've I've looked at this people, and you've made me their king. And when I look at this people, and then he uses this phrase, whose numbers outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, that recalls God's promise to Abraham. And I'm just overwhelmed. A long life or wealth or protection from my enemies, man, that just seems so selfish. I just know that you are the one that's made me king. I know that you are the one that has made me responsible. I know that you are the one that has put me in this situation, and I just don't want to fail. Like, I know the demands. I know the complicated nature of this. Will you help me know how to lead these great people of yours? Now, you can never surprise God, but it says, and it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this great thing. And so you know what God says? God said in his sovereign, divine prerogative, Solomon, since you didn't ask for a long life, and since you didn't ask for wealth, and since you didn't ask for protection from your enemies, but instead you asked that which was good. You asked for wisdom. You asked for an ability to lead this great people of mine because you know who I am. You know their great value and their worth. You see the responsibility that has been given to you. And Solomon, what you asked is a wonderful thing. I'm going to give you, are you ready for this? All of these things. You have won both showcases, Mr. Solomon. Think about it. God is impressed. So you have to believe when you read this text, even as complicated as it is, why is Solomon amassing this wealth when God has clearly warned against it? Still, the source of this wealth is Yahweh. Hmm. I think that's what makes life so complicated. This wealth that God has given me, you do know we're going to be sponsoring compassion children. This wealth that God has given me and the responsibilities that God has given me, maybe I'm supposed to do something with it. Not for my enjoyment, but for for God's glory and for others' benefit. 
Well, it's not just Solomon's riches that make much of him. It is also Solomon's wisdom that he is very known for. Wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is the accumulation of information, right? And many of us have crazy things that we know, lots of different things that we know, and it is this, this expertise in memorizing the minutia, isn't it? Wayne Gretzky's birthday is January 26, 1961. Why do you know Wayne Gretzky's birthday? And I, when people ask me that question, I'm like, to celebrate it? He's the greatest hockey, greatest athlete to ever live. How do we not celebrate it? By the way, it's also my sister's birthday, but who cares? It's Wayne Gretzky's birthday. I need to know that. That's the, that's the information. We look at that and we just go, you know, what really, what you, my wife looks at me so many times, why do you even care about that useless information? It's not information God gave him, it's wisdom. What is wisdom? The Bible, by the way, says pursue wisdom, seek wisdom. Wisdom is this incredible thing. You need to pursue it. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Oh, that, that actually, that is better. It's not just knowing stuff. It's not even just knowing great stuff. It's knowing how to apply that great stuff to life. Now, now that's the most important thing, isn't it? Even in Thomas Sewell's book, Intellectuals in Society, he just describes how so many people have this incredible, a mass amount of information, and yet there is what he calls information in the mundane, things that you know. He uses this example that when you're on the Titanic, there was a tremendous amount of wisdom, or sorry, there's a tremendous amount of information and knowledge that existed about the Titanic, but it was the wisdom of someone going, iceberg! You didn't have to be an expert to go, iceberg! <laughs> right? Wow. Solomon was wise. And if you look at what the text says, 1 Kings, back up a little bit, 1 Kings verse 4, or chapter 4, 1 Kings chapter 4, you'll see this. So this is just after the dream, 1 Kings 3, and God gives Solomon this incredible wisdom, and here's how it is described. Jump down to verse 29 of 1 Kings 4, and God gave, I think that maybe this is even why in the book of James, those of you that need wisdom, ask the Lord for it. Because we know the source of wisdom. I mean, anyone can teach you something. Wisdom's different. And God gave, gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. That's always a covenantal reminder. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. He was wiser than, I know you're wondering if he was. Well, he was. He was wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Herman. He was wiser than Herman, and he was wiser than Kalal, Kalkal, and he was wiser than Darda. He was wiser than the sons of Mahal, and his fame was all was in all the surrounding than all the surrounding nations. He knew more than anybody. Solomon was just wise, and I think that's one of the reasons why my dad loved Solomon so much, and he loved the words of Solomon so much. I mean, he was so wise that we have three Bible books that are given to us by him. Three. We have the book of Proverbs, which is him sharing his wisdom. Not only him, but he's the primary writer, sharing the wisdom of his life. We've got the book of Ecclesiastes, which appears to be him looking back on life and going, here's what I learned about life, and here's the lesson, by the way, from the book of Ecclesiastes, is that I've seen and I've experienced so many different things, and it is meaningless. Life. It, it is vanity. What do you mean by that? You're telling me life is meaningless? I thought God gave us life. I thought life was good. What do you mean it was meaningless? And here's what he means by that. 
Everything that I pursued and everything that I went after, everything that I thought I could control, when I went back and I looked, what I really discovered was I really wasn't in control. Solomon says, I watched people that were able to accumulate mass amounts of wealth, and then I watched them give that to their children, and their children waste it. And I just thought, what a waste of time. And I saw people that were able to build these amazing buildings, and and I watched them come down. And I watched people pursue love and relationships, and then people left them and they died. And Solomon goes, I did all of these things, and what I really found out, not that life has no purpose or no meaning, but life under the sun, right? Life on this planet. When we believe that we can control it, and we can manipulate it, and we can work it, It's just a chasing after the wind. That's what he means. That's wise. But what do you do with wisdom like that? I mean, it's even hard to understand wisdom like that. Um, My my father loved this book, the book of Proverbs, and so one he would actually say to us when we were kids was, listen, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, there are 31 days in the month, so you need to read a chapter a day, believing that somehow us reading the book of Proverbs would make us wiser children. That was his hope anyway. My dad would love to say when we were in trouble, go to your room, right? That was before, by the way, we had more stuff in our rooms than anywhere else in the house, right? Nowadays, you look and, yeah, I'll go to my room. I got a TV. I got Xbox. I got direct TV. I have everything. I got my cell phone. I have absolutely everything. Nowadays, it should be, you need to go outside and sit under a tree. That's what you have to do. But back then, when it was a punishment to go to your room, this isolated place where you were in when you had to go to sleep at night, I mean, it was torture. My brother was about seven, eight years old at the time, and he got in trouble. Company was over, so you never, you never like get into a, a jostling debate with dad when company is over, but my brother was, was kind of more stubborn than I ever was, and he looked at dad, and why, go to my room, why do I have to go to my room? What am I gonna do when I get there? And my dad's answer always was, read your Bible. Ugh, are you serious? I have to read my Bible? Like, why don't you just kill me? Like, I mean, I don't know if I want to read my Bible. And my brother didn't know to stop asking questions. Well, where do I read? The book of Proverbs. Fine. Seven-year-old goes into the book of Proverbs. Or goes into his room to read the book of Proverbs. My dad forgets that he had sent Henry into his room to read the book of Proverbs. And so he realizes, oh, I, should, I should go back and check on him. And so he goes and checks on him. And uh, he, Henry comes out, and he's now standing in front of my, my mom and dad and the company that is there. And, uh, well, son, because my dad doesn't just tell us to do something. Now we have to then integrate that information in a group context. And so, uh, you know how parents are. And so my dad says, so how did it go? What did you read? And he said, well, I read the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. Do you know the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs? Check it out. It's complicated. It's basically Solomon's admonition for a particular issue that can happen in a young person's life. And so my brother is asked, what did you learn? And my brother accurately describes at the age of seven or eight, not to have a relationship with an adulterous woman. <laughs> like there's some things that are wise, <laughs> but what does a seven-year-old do with that? Dad, what's an adulterous woman? My dad opened up the door. There's wisdom that I guess a lot of my life I've just felt like a seven-year-old. A lot of great pieces of advice, a lot of wisdom. I just have no idea what I'm supposed to do with this. And here's Solomon with all of this wisdom. One of the most famous stories in his life is when the queen of Sheba, 
comes down, or Queen Sheba, comes all the way from Africa to see him, and she's there to test him. She's there to go, hey, I've heard a lot of things about you, and I got some questions for you, smart Alec, and I want to know what you can possibly do. And she begins to drill him with these questions, and by the time she's done, her response is, it, it, you're, even, you're even more wise than I heard. Well, if he's more wise than she could even imagine. He's the wisest one on earth, and wisdom is the, is the implementation, the proper implementation of knowledge to life. And if all of this came from God, well then isn't that the ticket? Isn't that what we need? Not just knowledge, but wisdom. Doesn't that settle everything? Are you ready for this? No. Man, that makes me mad. That drives me crazy. It's been one of the greatest questions. I can't wait to ask God. I hope maybe Solomon's there too, but I can't wait. We don't know where Solomon is. I can't wait to actually meet him and go, how did this happen? Like you tell us to pursue wisdom. You tell us to pursue these things. And then here is someone who absolutely had it all, and yet they still failed. How does that happen? And here's the issue. As important as wisdom is, and as valuable as knowledge can be, there is something that God warns Solomon about, and he does this a number of times. Solomon, I'll give you all of this wisdom, and I'll give you all of this wealth, but wealth has this ability to insulate us from reality. It insulates me. When I have wealth, what I begin to realize, what I begin to believe, is that I got everything under control, and I really don't have a need for others, and I really don't have a need for God. That's what wealth does. And, and when I have wisdom, it's, man, I've really got some great ways to live my life. And by the way, wisdom can help you live a pretty good life. Just being wise. I, I remember watching my boys begin to fully understand and appreciate their position where now the life was becoming their own. I remember kind of looking into their eyes and thinking, wow, um, th- this is different. They now are beginning to take ownership. Not that they're making the best choices, but they're beginning to take ownership of their lives. And I remember looking down at them because they were about three years old, and I remember going, okay. I remember looking at them and thinking to myself, I have wasted too much time giving them my wisdom. Son, you need to work hard. I mean, you may not be the smartest person. You may not be the best looking person. You may not be, I mean, I've decided to tell my truth to my children. Like you're not the most amazing person in the universe. But one thing that you can really bring to the table is like a work ethic. And man, that just, it, it'll matter a lot, I promise. It'll begin to separate you from others. Work hard, work hard, work hard. And then I would say for the glory of God at the end. I would, I would challenge my, my children that if you have a huge task in front of you, what you really need to do is break it down. You might not be able to get it all done today, but break it down. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Break it down piece by piece. That's just some good stuff there. But when I'm looking at them and I'm realizing that in just three years, he's going to be going away to college, I just felt like my wisdom, although helpful, wasn't going to sustain them. And I remember the day when I realized I wasted some time giving them my wisdom instead of God's truth. And I I really had to wrestle with this fact. How can I make sure that my children always follow him? That's bigger than wisdom. And that's what we see with Solomon. 
What Solomon, I would argue, is most known for is not his riches and it's not his wisdom. I would even argue, I know, it's not his wives, but it's about his wives. It's about his failure. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, look at verse 1. By the way, in Chronicles, which tells more of the story about King David and about the southern tribes, it never mentions Solomon's downside. Completely skips it. But Kings doesn't. Kings exposes Solomon for who he is. And listen to how it's described. 1 Kings 11 verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, which, by the way, can you hear the accusation? The daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Isn't that what a husband's supposed to do? I went to a marriage retreat and they said that's what I was supposed to do. To love my wife. Now, now, the word love, you need to remember, is not just I have this love and I'm not heart. It's no, I have this love and this desire to serve. I have this, uh, this desire to make them happy. I mean, that's kind of the relationship that I'm in with Andrea. I, I see her and in her eyes and she says, I want something and I just want to fulfill it. Not always, but I'm trying. I want to fulfill it. And so I look at her, and how can I do it? How can I serve you, honey? What can I do for you? I, I do this occasionally, by the way. Don't I, honey? I mean, you'll, you'd, you'd hold me accountable. I would let her know in the early in the day, guys, here's a tip, okay? I text her, is there anything that I can do for you today? Anything I can do for you today? Why? Because I love her. She has my heart. What's wrong with that? Like, that's, 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 good, that's good marriage 101. Well, the problem is, when you marry someone whose heart is not directed in the same as yours. God doesn't hate people from Egypt or from Moab or from Amnon. He doesn't hate them. He just knows that their heart is pursuing another God. And so he says to Solomon, do not marry those people whose heart is going in another direction. Can you hear me, college students? This is the difficulty that we have. Because our heart gets a hold of us and then our heart begins to govern our mind. And, and this can even happen to the wisest person in the world. See, what God never said was, and Solomon, I'll give you wisdom and you'll be a perfect person. He never says that, does he? Solomon was an amazing king who was really able to bless his nation. Who was really able to live a very, very, very successful life. But what he did not understand or appreciate was that the ones, because he married lots of them, the ones he had decided to be connected to would lead his heart away. And the wisest man was an absolute fool, spiritually. God warns against this. Notice how it describes it. He says here, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and you might say, what was he doing? Man, this guy had a sex drive. No. You don't mass 700 wives because you like sex. You like them because you like power and to be in control of things. Solomon wasn't having intimate relationships with 1,000 women. 
He was calculating, you know what, if I marry the king of Sidon's daughter, then what I can do is I can have a safe border over there. Plus, her dowry is worth quite a bit. And Solomon is calculating exactly how, I mean, talk about networking. Solomon knows how to play the game, and he plays it well. He marries well. So that he is a very successful king, just a really bad follower of Yahweh. Let me say that again. Solomon was a very successful king and a really bad follower of Yahweh. And man, that happens, that happens to a lot of us. I even think about how my wife and I, if we're not careful, how we can even pray for our children. You know what I want our children to be? I want our children to be successful. I want our children to, to really do well in, in, in business. I want them to do well in, in, their, in their marriages and with their families. That's what we want. Oh, and by the way, God, if they could be followers of you too, that'd be kind of cool. Hmm. Did I get the order wrong? And we see Solomon who just follows his heart, which can be one of the most destructive things to do. Look at verse four. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after, and then it starts listing them, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Like, these aren't, I know these are other religions, and I know there's someone somewhere driving a car that says coexist, so that you can follow the abomination of something else. Like, as followers of Jesus Christ, this book does not recommend that. It recommends that we be kind and gracious and even love and pray for our enemies. But be careful loving the abomination of the Sidians. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but the good thing was his wives were happy. Like, things were good at home. But it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now do you see the problem with wealth and morality, with health? Is that you can have everything going well at home and everything going well at work and the only problem in the universe is God has something against you. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and he did not follow, he did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Have I told you we're going to Jerusalem? In May, we're going to Jerusalem. If, if you've been there, you could, you could picture this because here you have, and I'm looking from the south, here you have the, the tabletop, the platform where the temple would have stood. And here, a little higher, you would have this, the Kidron Valley, and then you would have this place where, where Solomon decided to erect, you know, because you got God on one side. We want to be an equal opportunity offender. We have God on one side, and then we have the God Chemosh, and the God Moloch. And, and here, we offer sacrifices to God, and here, we offer our children to demons. Why? Because I love her, and it's Valentine's Day. How do you get there? Follow your heart. That's how you get there. And so he did. Look at this. Look at verse, look at verse 8. This hits me hard. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. That's Solomon's failure. And so what do you do? Man, 
So this is it, this is how this ends. Actually, it's not how it ends. The amazing thing, and really kind of how this all comes together, is actually God's faithfulness beyond even Solomon's failure. What I love about this series is we're going to be dealing with the good and the bad of every king and every prophet. We're going to be dealing with human realities and then God's imposed prerogative and plan. And greater than Solomon's failure, the wisest guy that ever lived, greater than that is God's plan. And so what we see in 1 Kings 11, by by the way, God's faithfulness goes like this. Here's what I promise you, and he promised Solomon this. I'm going to give you all of this. And it will be a blessing to you, but if you choose to abandon me, I will hold you accountable. Remember that. That God may bless you with wealth and with a great family, and then at the end of your life, he's going to hold you accountable. Boy, that's what the world doesn't want to hear. That's why the world, I don't know how much they're really seeking God. They're seeking wealth. They're seeking family happiness. But one day we'll meet him. I believe that, actually, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe I will meet him someday. And so what does God say here? The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. God had told him a number of times. And he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. And therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, listen to that, See, it's, it's not since you made a mistake. I thought this was a very interesting phrase. See, David made a mistake, but adultery was not his practice. Do you see the difference? Like killing Uriah the Hittite was not his practice. It was something that David did that when repented of, it was forgiven. I want to ask you, like, is your, do you have a practice of loving your family, loving your husband, loving your wife more than God? Do you have a practice of loving your children more than God? Do you have a practice of loving your, your, your occupation or your own self-worth or value? Do you have a, a practice of loving that more than God? Well, if that's the case, then God will be faithful and hold you accountable. And so God says to Solomon, since this has been your practice, that you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. His name is Jeroboam. And Solomon is going to lose um, uh, 10 twelfths of the kingdom, five sixths of the kingdom. 10 of the tribes of the 12 are gonna go with somebody else because Solomon has decided to disobey God. So Solomon's... The the consequence is that God will be faithful to his word and then there is this incredible consequence that he has to deal with. And and, and by the way, every single one of us, believer or not believer this morning, has to hear that. One One of the constant themes is God will not be mocked even if you're a king, even if you're a prophet. God will not be mocked. Is that it? No. This is where the gospel of the kings and the prophets come in. There is a prophet that's going to come up later on, and he is going to look at the the mess of the kings of Israel, and he doesn't say, yep, you guys blew it, you guys kept blowing it, and so God has given up on you. They take Solomon, and, and this is how it's described, and he rested with his fathers, that means he's dead. So what happens to kings, even the, even the smartest and even the richest, even the most powerful, we put them in boxes and we say, goodbye, but God's story was not done. God's prerogative was not finished. He was not done with his people, for a king was going to come, and his name is Jesus. 
And God says through the prophet Isaiah, who prophesies that Jesus would come someday, and he says this. I love this phrase, and it made me think of it in terms of Solomon. Isaiah chapter 1, right there. Right here. Look at this. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity. And a solemn assembly, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. He continues. Come now. This is what I love about this statement. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. Like snow and like wool. What God says to the people of Israel is, listen, like I know you have failed, come now, can we reason together? I, I thought about this verse when I thought about how smart Solomon was and reasoning together. And here's what God says, let's reason about this. You are a mess and I will make you like snow. You are absolutely terrible and I'm going to make you whole. There's no reason in that. I can't get there by wisdom. I can't get there by figuring it out. I can't get there with knowledge. Well, I guess I can get there with a certain knowledge. The knowledge that God loves me anyway. And what Solomon didn't get, but what you may have the opportunity to get, is this. God may give you wealth and God may give you wisdom. God may give you an incredible family. I pray that what you have more than that is a heart for him, like David, his servant. And that you understand what it actually means to reason that. And so I've given up by thinking that people, just because they're smarter than me, have the answers. Now that's foolishness. But when God comes to me and says, I want you to think about this for a moment. Though you're a mess, I love you. And though you've rebelled against me, we're good. How, God, how? And he says, by believing in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that that would be our hearts, that that would be our intentions, that we would be lovers of Jesus. I can see why I am so conflicted by Solomon because I guess I believe that being smart and being wise is the best thing possible and it's not. That what David knew that his smarter than him son did not know was that you measure a man by his heart. And if Solomon knew it, he sure didn't live it. And I pray, God, that that would also be true of us, that we would pursue you with all of our heart, not just all of our mind, that we would pursue you with all of our heart and all of our life and not just in some small outside of the core of who we are way. God, may we give it to you. May we give you all of it because you've given all to us in Jesus. It's in his name we humbly pray. Amen. If you want to talk about wisdom and Jesus and uh, a heart for him, we'd love to continue that conversation with Stephen ministers and elders. We love you guys. We will see you Wednesday night. Have a good week.